this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Whether you're looking to sell your business in the near future or just want to make it more scalable and profitable, Work Better Now's virtual assistants can help you get there. Adding a virtual assistant to your team can help you focus on high-value activities like business development and training. Work Better Now clients also use their assistants as project managers, marketing and operations coordinators, and customer service representatives. Work Better Now clients say that their virtual executive assistants have made an impact on their business well beyond their expectations. For only $1,900 a month, you get a full-time assistant who is 100% dedicated to your business. There are no contracts, no additional cost. Based in Latin America with incredible English proficiency and business experience, Work Better Now assistants undergo a rigorous screening and onboarding process. Work Better Now is currently offering Built to Sell listeners and readers $150 off per month for three months just by mentioning Built to Sell. To learn more, visit workbetternow.com. So are you a fan of Shark Tank? You know, personally, I've always kind of wondered what happens behind the scenes when people prepare and eventually pitch the sharks. Well, my next guest, Kate Field, did exactly that. She started a company called The Kombucha Shop, where, guess what? They sold kombucha, but they sold kits for making kombucha at home, which was a novel concept at the time. She pitched the sharks. She wanted $350,000 investment in return for 10% of her company. She got her money, and surprisingly, she decided not to take it. I'll let her tell you the rest of the story. You'll learn a ton about preparing to pitch your business, whether it's to the sharks or to just about any investor in this episode. It also takes you through the highs and the lows of the entrepreneurial journey. And I think it's one of those episodes you can put in your earbuds and just sit back and listen to the stories, revel in all of the twists and turns that take place on this journey we're all on. And I think you'll take away a lot of lessons embedded within Kate's story. Here to tell you the entire story itself is Kate Field. Kate Field, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much for having me, John. The Kombucha Shop. First of all, did I pronounce it right? Yes, you got it. (laughs) Good. Well, that's important because, you know, I've seen the bottles in Whole Foods and I'm like, what on earth is this toxic and good stuff? I've never picked it up, but I've always wondered how on earth you pronounce it. So I'm glad that you got it right. Yes. Okay. So how did you get into this business of kombucha? Tell me the story. Definitely. Um, So I can't believe you've still managed to not try it yet. (laughs) That's impressive. I'm, I'm virgin. I haven't touched this stuff. I'm like, I promise you. I promise you. Um, yeah. So that was um, that was for a lot of people when I started the company. Uh, I was back in 2013. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And it was pretty much people who were just really into health and wellness, like very hip. Everyone was drinking it in places like L.A. and New York. But when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where I started the business, it was very much back to a teaching level of like what this product is. Um, so yeah, when I was in DC, I was working for a nonprofit 
and was making nonprofit wages, so not bringing in um, a very big salary, but I loved kombucha. I'd fallen in love with it, like a lot of people do. Like you taste it and you're just like, oh, it's sweet, it's sour, it's fizzy. And it's also got health benefits, right? As I yes. understand, like there's some good, like, yep, yeah, it's chock full of probiotics and you know, B vitamins and other beneficial acids that help with digestion and enzymes and things. So, yeah, it has a little bit of a health benefit, um, that kind of I think makes people feel it's a better alternative to soda, which it very much is. Um, just, you know, there's a little bit of sugar still in kombucha that is remaining, but compared to a, a soft drink type of beverage, it's, it's vastly better. So, right, so how um, did you get into the business of, like, so you're working on the nonprofit? Yeah, so I'm working on the nonprofit and I'm drinking kombucha and loving it, but the, it was four or five bucks a bottle it was very standard back in 2013. Uh, so GT's was kind of the main a kombucha brewer at the time and their bottles were still roughly four bucks. No one had gone through a massive scaling yet, like health aid and all these other companies didn't really, uh, grow large enough to bring the cost down until just the last couple of years. So it was much more cost beneficial at the time to brew it at home because you could brew kombucha for basically the cost of sugar, uh, tea and water. So mm. all you needed was a kombucha culture and someone to teach you how to do it. And so back then I was working at the food bank and a lot of my coworkers had started brewing it to save money. And so I had a friend teach me how to do it. And as we're going through this process, I was like, wow, this is kind of complicated and a little bit intimidating. The culture is uh, kind of gross looking. If you've ever <laughs> Googled a kombucha scoby, um there we'll put that in the show notes and you can have yeah <laughs> think, like, think like the brain that you used to look at in science class and grade yes that's sort of that kind of it's vibe. very similar um and so i had a manager who came into a meeting one day and was like hey try my kombucha i brewed at home and i was like oh who taught you how to brew and she was like no no, no i ordered a kit online and like my mind was just blown that someone had thought about packaging and selling all of the supplies to brew it at home instead of having a friend you know bring over the stuff in a ziploc baggie and and go to thrift stores to get all your other stuff um so i immediately just took to google and was like kombucha brewing kits and doing all this market research and basically the only folks who are out there doing it were not catering towards like a young millennial crowd because you know i was in my mid-20s and everybody that i knew who was brewing was very young and liked well-branded packaging but everything that was currently out there and being sold was more towards like kind of a 90s hippie branding so i just saw this huge gap and opportunity and i didn't really have any business background to speak of but it was more that i could see that kombucha was going to be really big and i wanted to carve out a little piece that I, I thought I could nab. And so you started creating your own kits because what you saw was easily, you could, you could do a better job. I thought, yeah, I could, I sat within five minutes. I was like, wow, I could do this so much better. How does a lady working in the food bank, not a customer, but a working in a food bank, which I think <laughs> is not terribly well paid, come up yep. with the money to start a, like a direct to consumer brand? Like brand. this sounds like a very expensive endeavor. Yeah, um, which is what I love about my story because 
it wasn't. I decided I had no money. I literally had $800 to my name and I took all, I took everything and I built the company from that. I literally bootstrapped it with that money. And explain that. How, how did you <laughs> spend? What did you spend $800 bucks on? Yeah. Oh gosh, this has been so long, but, um, this is what I did. I bought, um, just enough supplies. So like glass jars, um, all these other little things, sugar, tea, pH strips. I bought just enough supplies to sell, I think, and package 10 or 20 kits, something like that. Um, and I hired a student designer because I, literally, you know, of course could not <laughs> afford an actual designer, but I thought, hey, you know, this a student designer is going to graduate in a year or two and be charging 70, 80 bucks an hour. Why not? And they want to build their portfolio. So I tracked down some student designers and uh, picked the best one. And we were kind of off to the races. And she charged me like, I think it was like 150 bucks, 200 bucks. Mm. And, but it was enough. It was enough to make our very rudimentary first logo, and um, which I turned into a sticker that went on How to a plane. How um, okay, so I got everything put together. And then I built a Squarespace website. That was it. I had no background in coding or anything like that. How did you get people to your Squarespace page? Was it all word of mouth in the beginning? Or what was yeah, that? so I released it right before Christmas. So I launched the website and it wasn't by any means like even close to perfect, but I tried to not let perfect, you know, be the enemy um, of good and just get out of my own way and just launch it. And I sent an email to friends and family and was like, hey, um, you know, I have some news. I, I left the food bank and I started this um, this new company. And I would love it if you had anyone on your gift list that you were still thinking about. You know, I'd love your support and thank you so much. And everyone was so supportive. And I, I sold through the 20 kits. And it was really off to the races from there. I took the money from those proceeds and went and I bought the next, you know, to make 50 kits. And the way it just started very organically, the, the first kind of six to 12 months was just word of mouth. You know, a friend posted on their Facebook page. It was a lot of like guerrilla marketing in the beginning. I just asked people like, hey, you know, I'm a new young company. Could you could you rep this on your Facebook? Because in, Instagram like barely existed then. Mm. Um, it was just starting. And um, so, yeah, it's a, and it went from there. So scrappy guerrilla marketing tactics in the beginning and then reinvesting all the profits. At some point, you got on Shark Tank. Explain that. What, what, how did you get on Shark Tank? Yeah. So it was uh, 2018 and I got an email from someone who claimed to be a producer at Shark Tank. And I didn't believe it at first because it was like just a super rudimentary email. And I was like, this is a scam. Anyone who owns businesses knows like you get emailed all the time by people yeah, sure. trying to hit you up. And so I didn't respond, but he followed up and was like, no, really, like we're really interested. We love what you're doing with the kombucha shop. We think you'd be awesome on Shark Tank. So we got on the phone and um, he kind of explained the whole process. And I decided to apply uh, maybe you know, a month or two later, because I really had to think about like, did this make sense for my company? You, like what were your annual sales in the, in the kind of 12 months leading up to the on-air screening of Shark Tank? Like when Mark Cuban says, what are your sales? Like, what, what was your answer? I, I haven't read, watched the show, but your last 12 months. Yeah. Um, at that point we were probably, so I went on 2018. Um, we were probably doing about 
like 1.5, maybe 1.2 in, in revenue, probably at the time of going on Shark Tank, I want to say, um, like right. trailing 12 of going on to Shark Tank. And what did um, you ask for? What was the valuation you, you pitched? So I valued it, I ended up valuing it at three and a half million because I basically talked with a lot of different people. I know. <laughs> it's like three times revenue. It's, it was ridiculous. But everybody I talked to said for Shark Tank, you're undervaluing your company. Huh. And so, and at that point I was kind of in a, in a growth stage. Like I see, so 2016, I had done 800, a little over 800,000 in sales. 2017, 1.2. And then early 2018, we had made, a, had a very good Q4 in end of 2017. So when I went on, the numbers were like looking like things had been growing uh, nice. pretty well. Like, yeah, like things were healthy and there was, and the big thing that made our company valuable was that I never actually put money, any large amount of money to speak of towards digital advertising, any kind of digital marketing. It stayed, it ended up over the years, just ended up staying organic growth because we became the leader in the market really quickly basically because of that brand differentiator. I was the only like really attractive, cute, modern brand. And so we were able to swallow up all of the organic traffic. Just when you say organic traffic, to be, just to make sure we're not confusing terminology, we're not talking about the, the product being organic, although I think it was. <laughs> yes, it was. We're no, I mean like non- Googling. Yes, non-paid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, non-paid search. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you're getting a lot of natural um, sort of traffic through that. And yeah. that makes so sense. I knew so going into the show that there was this enormous upside that hadn't been realized yet by the company. And it just, every, I talked to a few different people and I was telling them I was going to originally value the company at $2 million. And they just said, shoot for the stars. Like, why not? Mostly, I think the biggest reason, and it's, it, I still think it holds true today, is that I was 100% owner, bootstrapped the company. There wasn't a million other investors to divvy up the equity with. So I was able to kind of come in and ask like for a really large valuation, but yeah. What was that like in the, in the minutes leading up? Like when you're in the green room and you're about to go on, like what's that like? It was terrifying. <laughs> it was really, it was scary. Yeah. I mean, the sharks are in, when you get in there, like they're just as scary, if not scarier in real life, because they're so close to you. They're, they're eight feet away and you have these really hot lights just pounding down on you. And um, yeah, it was scary. I spent like eight hours locked in a trailer before I walked out because uh, you're not allowed to like see anything or see anyone or talk to anyone beforehand. They keep you really secluded. So I'm just, I would just basically sat in there trying to like listen to, to pump up playlists and Tony Robbins and other ridiculous things <laughs> to stay calm. Uh, there's nothing about Tony Robbins would, that would make me stay calm. That's <laughs> all right. I guess the, the confidence building, the inspiration of like, yeah, you can do this. And I've, I had that point, I had practiced for three months, like intense preparation. So much work had gone into it. 
And I knew I couldn't have prepared anymore. Like I literally left everything on the field, so to speak. So I felt pretty good going in, but it was nerve wracking. Um, so I reaction to your presentation. It was great. It was really good. It ended up being like, I think Inc magazine ranked it like the number two pitch of the season. Uh, yeah, it couldn't have gone better. And so what'd they say? So, well, if I, if I remember correctly, I haven't seen it in like years at this point, but Kevin came out with the first offer and valued it. He thought the valuation was ridiculous uh, also. And he came out and offered, I think he wanted to take 30% of the company. Um, basically, really, like, I just, I didn't pay attention to it. 30% um, of the company in return for, I think you were asking for, for 350 grand. For 350 grand, yeah. Got it. So he was so, at about a million-ish. Yeah, so really just... Um, cut the valuation down but it was very apparent that throughout the mark cuban was loving it like from the very beginning he was just like this is an amazing story you're an awesome entrepreneur so like i knew he was probably going to come in with something and then barbara um barbara loved it and so what ended up happening is her and sarah came in and we should be clear sarah blakely the founder yes. of spanx an amazing entrepreneur was kind of guest starring with the whole season or just that episode just that episode so they have guest sharks come on um with some regularity now each season and so sarah blakely was the guest shark for my pitch and her and barbara ended up giving me exactly what I asked for. They, they valued the company at three and a half million for 10% and both of them were gonna come in. So I was gonna get two sharks, um, basically for the price of one at what I was asking. So I didn't bat an eye and I was just like, yes, I will take that deal. And the way the editors spun it is that they panned to Mark and Mark just was devastated. <laughs> he was, was really, he was really bummed. He didn't get- um, Left at the get, altar, get, so to speak. Yeah. So, but he was the one who taught me um, from watching the show for so many years, a bird in the hand. He's like one of the big, he gets mad. He gets really frustrated when entrepreneurs don't take a good deal. So I wasn't about to let that happen. So where does it go from there? So, okay. The, the show's over. You got your 350 grand, I'm assuming. Uh, no. So uh, what a lot of folks don't know about Shark Tank is that only about half the deals that are made on air end up closing in real life. So um, it's kind of the opposite of an actual, of a typical business deal because you meet them for the very first time in person in the tank. They don't know a thing about you or your business. And so the due diligence really starts after the deal, the handshake deal is made. So your lawyers and their lawyers get together. It can take anywhere from six to nine months. And actually roughly around 50% of deals that are done on air uh, never actually close in, in real life. So that we were one of those deals that didn't end up closing after the airing. And, was and that both- more your, your decision or was it there? Yeah, both, both sides felt good about it. Um, it just wasn't necessarily what everyone was really looking for at the end of the day. And I'd come to, to realize maybe with the age of my company, um, it was almost like trying to take uh, a partner on too late in the process because we were already, you know, I'd been in business over five years at that point. And uh, yeah, we just had sort of um, differing opinions about how to move forward. So everyone felt really good 
that it wasn't quite the right fit. So, but but in the end, you benefited tremendously because this national television exposure would be priceless. You'd never be able to afford that. I'm assuming. Yeah, it was incredible, and it really took our business to the next level. And it was a kind of one of the more strategic moves I made in getting ready to sell. Was I knew because we hadn't put a ton of money into digital marketing yet. Um, I needed something, a big boost, a big lift to help launch us to that next level pre-sale so that it would get buyers excited that there was something that they could really sink their teeth into like, oh, wow, yeah, we've had this national exposure. And it ended up doing exactly that. So you were thinking of selling even before Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, That's early. You're relatively early in your life, both your chronological life, but also yeah. your company's life. What, what triggered you decided to sell so early? Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I was in my late 20s. Um, well, I had started it, I started in 2013. So it had been um, going on, you know, five years at that point. And I never thought I would be running this business even as long as I had been. So when I started the company, I had no mis I, I had no sense that I was gonna be growing a 30 or 40 million dollar business because I knew it was a a niche market and that there were only so many people that want to homebrew kombucha in the country, let alone the world. And even if this thing really took off, there was always going to be a cap to it, right? It was, and that was a nice thing to be a big fish for a long time. Um, but I knew that there was only so far this could go. And so I had to have an end game in mind was kind of my thought. Also, the fact that kombucha was... By, considered by some people like a wellness fad. And I knew that it was deeper than that and that it was really becoming its own category that was going to displace soda, at least in the natural grocery realm, which it very much has. And um, But there was still this possible kind of time limit of like, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 20, but and what did you tell the sharks? Because I know the sharks, that, I mean, you can't go on a shark tank saying, yeah, we're a lifestyle business and we expect to be the same size next year and the year after that. Like you've got to show them the hockey stick or yeah. some sort of, you know, tell, some sort of narrative. So right. like, what did you tell them that you thought was the addressable market or the size of market you might be able to go after? I knew that there was, uh, there was a lot of potential left in the business. And what I pitched was just that I didn't have the expertise in digital marketing or really truly the interest. Like I had gotten into this because I enjoyed teaching people how to brew kombucha. You know, it's kind of the, the, the classic old school entrepreneur story. Um, and so I had sort of reached my capacity of what I thought uh, as sort of a leader in the business. And that was why I was looking for a strategic partner. And that was really the, that was the truth. Um, and that was what, when I didn't do the deal with the sharks was what led me down the path to sale even faster. Cause I, I still felt that. That desire to have, that you were sort of over your head, if I can use that. To, those are my words. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. You're feeling like this is, this is growing to a point where. Yeah. It's growing to a point where I had kind of maxed out that natural interest and that I was going to have to develop a really thoughtful, high-level digital advertising and marketing campaign that I just didn't have the background in. 
And a lot of entrepreneurs, everything else in the business, of course, I didn't also have a background in, but I had a natural interest, whether it was um, supply chain or scaling, even just building a company culture that myself and my employees love to come to every day. All of those things in business, I was naturally very attracted to, but the one piece was very that was missing was very necessary for a successful e-commerce company. And were you tempted to hire like a marketing agency or a professional services firm to, to help you? Yes, definitely. I think what happened though was I had gone too far into the business that the burnout had already set in. It was it was very mild, but I knew what was coming. I had listened to plenty of people, you know, podcasts like yours, like it is the thing that you have to be prepared for. And I knew I'm not going to even have the interest to stick around and manage a, a company, um, an agency to do the marketing that I was kind of already like a half foot out the door at that point. Got it. So where do you go from there? So you've kind of, you're, you're, the, the idea of selling has twigged for you. So what, what next? So, yeah, so we did Shark Tank and it was phenomenal. And we had this huge boost in sales afterwards. I think we did something like six or $700,000 in sales in like the eight weeks following wow. the airing, which was so high because it overlapped perfectly with the holiday buying season. It aired like a week before Black Friday. Oh, man, so we just got so lucky on so many levels. Um, and so we had this enormous growth in revenue and, and that also boosted me kind of emotionally. It gave me that extra zest to like really push out the next year and make it great and grow the business as much as I could. And so, cause I wanted to, if I did decide to put the business up for sale, I wanted to go out on top. Like I wanted to still have the energy and excitement about the business so that I could really speak truthfully about how great the business is to a potential buyer and help with that transition and still have the energy to help the business, the next owner thrive. So that was how, so that would have been 2019. What and for 2019 at in terms of like trailing 12 months revenue. Yep. So when I, I put the business up for sale right at the end of 2019 and we were right around 2 million in revenue um, for the trailing 12. And and that was another, so it was part of putting up the sale then for the business up for sale then was because I knew we would probably come off of what a lot of people call the shark tank cliff within the next six to nine months because you get such a lift in sales. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's great for business. Um, you get so much exposure, you get this huge lift in sales, but it can start to look like you'll have a down year if you don't follow it up with massive investment in advertising and marketing to keep it going. And because I knew I was going to be selling, it was like, well, I'm not about to dump a ton of money in um, to grow it if I'm not going to realize the profit. So it was a little bit of a time crunch to make sure I found a buyer and before things kind of uh, evaporated in terms of that Shark Tank run, you, you they re-air the, the episodes with relative frequency within that first year. So you kind of get to see this continuous bump and growth from it. But yeah, so we were about 2 million in revenue by the time I went to the brokerage that I found to sell. Great. And what happened next? 
Uh, things moved really quickly from there. And I wasn't even 100% set on selling. And I think this, I think it went the way it was supposed to, but I really went into it sort of exploratory because I loved running my company still. I loved my staff. I had a great time doing it. It was just purely that I had been in startup mode for so long that I was getting exhausted, but it was still like very emotionally fulfilling for me. So I felt very torn. If do I sell or do I not sell? And it being my first business, it was very much like a baby um, for better or for worse. I was very close with it. So I really struggled with that. But in my heart of hearts, I knew, I think this is something I need to, to do for myself. And, but I told myself, well, I'm just exploring. <laughs> We're just going to see what's going, you know, what do people, what would people pay for it? This is just, um, I'm in investigating. But once you get into it, it's almost like the process takes over as I'm sure um, anyone who's sold a company knows, it's like it's like the train leaves the station and either you're you're on it or you're off. And it's really hard to uh, change the destination once you're headed think, towards it. I think people would be would benefit from hearing from you what you mean by that. I know what you mean by that. Uh, yeah, because in my experience, when the 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 broker, the banker gets involved. Uh, they sort of drive the process and you're kind of holding on for dear life. And that's yeah. because their, their job is to drive a process. But I think people having never gone through the process would benefit from hearing from you. Like, what does it feel like to, to have this thing take on a life of its own? Like what made you feel like it had a life of its own? Yeah. And that's a really good way of saying it because the business sale process is an entirely it is a life of its own it's a it's almost like starting a second company and the mission of that company is to sell your business like so much time and energy and effort gets put into the sale of the business that it becomes a sole focus and it is very hard like yes you're you're still working in your business and you're still trying to make sure that your your revenue is staying up but it becomes the chief mission. And all of a sudden, like you said, there's so many people involved. You've got the bankers, the lawyers, your broker. Um, usually your spouses are then the interested parties and they want to have their two cents. Because um, if you're if you're a founder, like they've been along for this ride, if you've had a, an intimate partner with you during this time. So like my husband was very much kind of in an advisory role during this time. And uh, yeah, it's just, it starts to grow and grow and process. you get to a point where someone says, I want to go under LOI and you're like, Stands for yeah. letter of intent for folks who may yep. know that acronym. Yep. Yeah. So they say, Hey, we want to, we want to sign some papers that say, we're going to start an official due diligence with the intent to buy your business. And you're like, well, we've come this far. We've put so much time and energy and they seem great. Um, I guess I'm doing this <laughs> is eventually where it starts to, the doubts of go away because they kind of have to, it's like you've. Did that happen for you? Did you get an LOI? Yeah. So it all happened really quickly. So we put the business um, up for sale with the brokerage and I went to a brokerage that specializes in e-commerce companies, particularly with hmm. an Amazon uh, bent. Like that was our about at the time of sale, about 70% of our revenue 
was through Amazon and 30% was from the website. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were very heavy into Amazon. So I went with a, a broker who had a, a large list of interested buyers that were used to playing in that space. And so we put it up and we had a lot of interest at first. So, and it was really that Shark Tank piece that ended up being um, something that everybody was attracted to. So back, back to the, the story here. So you're, you're shopping the business, the broker's doing a great job sort of getting interested parties. Are you getting multiple offers? Is the broker trying to like coalesce around a certain offer date? Like how are they, how are they? Doing? Yeah. The way they did it is um, it's kind of a first come first serve, like whoever wants to go under LOI first. Um, but obviously I met with maybe five or six people who had, who put in essentially like, um, high interest that they wanted to start negotiations. And there were a few different, um, there was like some private equity companies that it just, that didn't make sense. Um, and then there was, um, it, they were, a lot of them were just, you know, from New York and, hadn't really been in this, the e-commerce, uh, like home brewing space. And they had admitted that, but they were really attracted to, they were just trying to buy up Amazon, um, products that with, that had a high profitability. And so it seemed like they were a little more churn and burn. Um, and I could have been wrong about that, but that was just my read. And because I cared so much about the company and our customers and my employees just didn't seem like the right route. I really wanted to find another kind of small business owner type investor that was looking to just be a little more involved in the business. And so that was who we ended up going under an LOI with was, um, you know, a young guy who was, who had bought and sold a number and grown a number of companies. He was a really good kind of cultural fit with the team. He wanted to turn the company into a B corporation and put me on the board. And so it felt a little more holistic. So what was his offer on a multiple of profit? Like, was he, what, where were you at? On, in, yep. In so of- it was really interesting. Um, the offer that he eventually put out had a really large burnout. Um, so he was going, we initially asked when we put the business up for sale, we were asking 2.2 million and that was on just under 2 million in revenue, uh, with the 500,000 profit. And he had said, you know, I've, I've looked at your financials. I've split them six ways a Sunday and your business is worth 2 million and there's no other way around it. Um, and I was like, okay, you might be (laughs) right about that. Um, But there are things that make it really special. And so I think 2.2 is still reasonable. So he worked in this earnout that eventually over maybe a total of like a seven-year period, I could earn up to 2.7. And, but the cash up front was only to start at, you know, the close of sale was only going to be 1.5 or 6 somewhere in that ballpark. So I had the reason why I was going to take it though. We went under LOI. I agreed to the terms. I was like, 
this all sounds great because I had put so much trust in him and where he was going to lead the company and this board seat. And I was going to spend, you know, the next two years kind of working with them still. And I was still really attracted to that idea. I wasn't ready to cut the cord entirely because I felt really connected to it still. And so I felt good about the deal. So we went on uh, three months of due diligence and then March, I'll never forget the date. It was Friday the 13th of March, 2020. And I get a phone call, you know, there's it, these things on, I live in Austin, Texas. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm watching the news and it's like South by Southwest is canceled and, and everyone's starting to talk about the pandemic and but no one was calling it that yet. It was just the virus at the time. And, and I kept thinking like so many people, oh, this is not a big deal. Like what, this will be a month tops, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Like this is yeah. what, why are people freaking out? And he, he calls me and he says, Kate, um, I'm so sorry, but I've got to pull out of the deal. And I just, I just broke down because we were a week from closing. And he said, I know you don't, you probably don't think this is true, but we're about to have a global pandemic and the economy is going to screech to a halt. Supply chains are going to be disrupted. This is going to last two to four years. And back in this time, like he sounded ludicrous. He just, it sounded like he was being um, just like a fear monger. I remember thinking, I was like, yeah, but why would you take that risk? And you've put so much time into this business deal. Um, but he was very uh, steadfast and he said, I'm so sorry, but we, you know, I got to walk away. So that was how that ended. Yeah. That must have been tough. It was really hard. It was really hard. And um, I remember in that moment feeling like the floor had just been ripped out from under me and everything you start planning for, you know, the post exit and, and what you're, what you're going to do afterwards. Like it was just all gone in, in, in a, the blink of an eye. And so it was really devastating. I was, I was sad about it and I didn't know really what to do. Um, so the next question, before yeah. we go, I want to, I want to get to the next start or next chapter in the story. Before we go there, I want to ask the one-time sales blip or the, the kind of honeymoon or halo effect of shark tank. I think you called it the shark tank effect or something like that. Did, did that come up in negotiations with this young guy? Did he say, you got to lower your, you know, because this, this is a not, this is a one-time anomaly and you, you can't expect this to go on forever. I mean, did he use that as a negotiating ploy? He did. He definitely did. And, um, but I, my counter to it, um, which was valid was yes, there was this one-time blip sort of, um, in revenue, but it was, it still leveled us up to a place of national recognition where, you know, store buyers were calling us that I could never get to pick up the phone. And now they were calling me and saying, Hey, we'd love to have your kits in the store. Um, so there was all of this uncaptured value still from it mm -hmm. that I kind of kept coming back to like, you're just seeing the revenue from the trailing 12 as this blip, but it's not just a blip. It's like a new baseline for, for the company. And eventually that is what kind of won him over that he's, you know, he saw the, the longer term value for it. Uh, it and yeah, like you, you, although negotiated hard, you also had 
a relatively good relationship with this guy. You were willing to be on the board. You, you know, you broke down and cried at the, the, <laughs> at the news that he was not going to do the deal. Like, it, it, it sounded like you, for, you, you had a, a relationship that, that was positive, that, that was not just a clinical private equity kind of deal. How yes. did you manage to keep relations uh, positive while at the same time negotiating for your, you know, to, to what you wanted. How did you do that? It seems mm -hmm. like a really hard thing to do. Yeah, it, it was, and it wasn't, we got, yeah, we became very close very quickly because we were similar people and similar entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when he said he wanted to turn it into a B corporation, it was like, Hey, yeah, we've been working towards that for, we basically were a B corp, but just without the status. Um, and what there's is a B Corp so, for folks who don't, for me, for example, me, <laughs> what is a B Corp? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing in that it's not a real, I mean, I guess it is a real corporate uh, designation, but um, it basically says that you are equally valuing people, uh, planet and profit, not just oh, okay. profit. The so there's bottom line stuff. Triple bottom line. Yep. Yeah. So it means you're taking care of your employees, you're sourcing your product in a way that's responsible, um, and all these other measurements um, for success than just profit. Cool. Okay, yeah. so let's so, get to the actual yeah. story from here. So Friday the 13th comes, the deal blows up, you're back licking your wounds thinking, hey, yeah. what on earth am I going to do next? <laughs> exactly. It well, it's funny because your exact thought of you were so close with this person was my brokers was kind of a worry of his that he wasn't surprised when this thing imploded in the way that it did. Um, that if we were going to go back to the table after this, cause he obviously, you know, called me a few hours later and we're talking strategy of where do we go? What do we do? Like the pandemic is hitting. Um, the one thing he knew was we were not going to do what we did with the first buyer, which was get very intimately involved. My staff had known because it was such a sure bet, right? Um, that was such a, a lesson learned from this whole process was nothing is a sure bet until that dotted line is signed. Um, even though we were working so much like the business sale was inevitable, he was already talking with my staff. Like um, I kind of, that was a big no-no that I uh, had to learn the hard way, I think. Um, so when we kind of went back to the drawing board, um, my broker was just like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm so confused as to what makes sense with this pandemic because we were dealing with so little information. It was like, was this guy right? Or was he just overblowing this? So I, he, my broker said, why don't you just take, take a few days clear your head. And um, he said he was going to send out to a few people who had been kind of waiting in the wings and hoping that the deal was going to fall apart. Um, he had a few people uh, kind of lined up and he said, you know, I'll send him a message and we'll see if they're still interested giving um, the whole pending economic collapse. Um, so I said, okay. So the next day I decided to go out and go mountain biking with my husband. He was like, let's go um, just get some fresh air and take your mind off of it. So we went out to a downhill park that's west of Austin. And who knows why this happened or if there is no meaning in the universe, but I ended up getting in an epic bike accident. And I ended up getting airlifted to the trauma center here in Austin. Oh. 
and I broke my collar. So I ended up breaking my collarbone and two bones in my two vertebrae in my back. And yeah, it was it to, if you ever don't want to care about your business or things falling apart, just go get in a life threatening accident and it will put things in perspective. Um, but yeah, so it, it worked to do that. And I remember, um, talking with Brad, or, well, I don't know if I can say his name, but my broker, I called him from the hospital and I was like, I've got myself in a, in a bit of trouble <laughs> and I thought you should know. Um, and we both just talked about like, what did this mean for the business sale? Like it was so many things coming to a head at once with the pandemic and this accident. It was just like, maybe I should just take the business sale off the table and just take the next few weeks to recover from this and figure out a little, we'll get some more news on the pandemic. Um, but I ended up doing the reverse. The accident just put in my mind, like life is short. I could have, anything could have happened today. And is this what I want to be doing? Like worrying about my business and dealing with this kind of thing. Um, it was just such a wake up call. And it was like, no, I want to go live. I want to sell this company. I want to go live my life. That was what ended up sort of being the takeaway. Well, it, it should be clear. Did you make a full recovery from the accident? I mean, did you you didn't see 100%. Yeah. Like that. Okay. So, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. They were, I, um, they were just little bones like in my, they're called spinous process bones. Um, and they're just like these artificial little tips. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a miracle. I literally walked away, um, you know, after surgery, I've, I've been totally fine. So, well, that's good. So you, you, get through this horrific experience and it does nothing but galvanize your decision to want to sell. Now you are motivated. Yeah. Now I am Super like, let's, <laughs> I've never been more motivated. Um, let's get this show on the road. I don't care about this virus that's coming. Um, and lo and behold, there was this buyer who had been waiting. And uh, as he told me, praying that something would, um, allow him to be able to one to buy be the one to buy the company and he was in a hurry he was very much like let's get this done he wanted to go on under loi like asap um i got my accident on a saturday i went into surgery that monday or tuesday and i'm literally like in the hospital and i have to give the verbal okay to go under loi and i remember my broker had his was like put cameron on the phone my husband he was just like, is Kate like of sound mind enough to be making this decision? Right. And um, how many Percocets did she have today? Exactly. And the funny thing is, is now looking back, it's like, no, I should have never been making that decision then. And I can't believe that they let that happen. But um, they knew that where like my heart of hearts was was that um, even if I was on a large amount of morphine, I I wanted to move forward. So we went under LOI and. Yeah, we were, from that point forward, I think we closed within 90, definitely within 90 days, which was kind yeah, of a miracle. Did, what did he offer? Because you had, before the accident, before the pandemic, an offer of $1.5 million plus the potential to get it all the way to 2.7 with the urine out and the board seat. What was the the duress or the, <laughs> the I want to get it done offer uh, in relation to the, the previous? Yeah, so the new 
buyer definitely used the risk of the looming pandemic to drive the price down. So we were asking 2.2. He came to the table and said, I'm, pay I'm not paying over 1.85 was his offer. And I came back and was like, come on, like literally, I really wanted 2 million. I thought it was super justified. And he was like, no, the, the, the global economy could collapse within the next 12 months. I'm taking an enormous amount of risk. And I said, all right. And I, I agreed to the, to the 1.85 plus some with what ended up being some, you know, some consulting time and inventory, the total, I, I ended up walking away with just about 2 million. So I was happy. I mean, incredible given the circumstances of what was going on in the world at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And um, it's easy now to look back and see that. But at the time, and that's what's so hard for everybody, it's like back then, like we knew so little about what was happening. Um, but I still wasn't, I still kicked myself like six months after the sale where I was just like, oh, I should have gotten more. I should have stuck to my guns or like, uh, but now have, being about a year and a half out from this, I have really good perspective on, no, it's been an incredibly challenging time for businesses and, uh, the supply chain. So that's really interesting that you have kind of gone through this almost full circle, this, uh, because we hear a lot on this show about a little bit of seller's remorse. Like there's that immediate high that you get from selling. And then there's oftentimes a few months later, this kind of lull and think, oh man, did I leave money on the table? Could I have done better? Mm -hmm. And then there's this sort of coming, I think to terms with it, almost like a death of some sort where you're kind of mm -hmm. like, you know what? I, that, that was meant to be, or that was the right outcome for me at the time, given everything that was going on. So it sounds like you went through yeah. that entire grieving process. I really <laughs> did almost to a T, which is, it's like kind of embarrassing to think about um, when you're going through it, you feel so kind of alone and like that, oh, I've made all these mistakes. But yeah, once you start talking with more people who've sold companies, it's almost the exact same time every time. And it's very similar to the to grieving a loss. Um, and you yeah, you go through the same steps. And I especially had a really hard time with um, letting go of the, a business that I was so close with. And I had differing opinions with the new ownership um, of, you know, how to, <laughs> the, the company should, should move forward. And so we ended up parting ways uh, really quickly after the sale. Um, and that only made the, the depths of like the buyer's remorse that much worse. Cause I, I felt I had made the wrong choice and was very much blaming myself for going for continuing to have the business up for sale in such a time of uncertainty and kind of making the choice from a place of fear instead of a choice in a place of, of confidence, which I know in business is just never great to do. So I felt like I had created this, this mortal sin. Um, and it's really taken me, yeah, well over a year to kind of come to full acceptance with it and now know and be able to look back and reflect and say, no, actually it was a great deal and it was a, a good time to sell, but it's sort of like the story's never finished being written. So if that was for me, if someone could have come down to me and said like, Kate, just wait 12 months, <laughs> like you're in the, you're in the thick of it. You're in the, the, this like really low place, but 
you will come around. Um, and I did, and I, and I'm really happy. And now, and now it's great. So I have to ask, would you do the deal again, knowing everything you know now, if you could wind back the clock, would you do the deal? Mm -hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Which is crazy because 12, not, yeah, less than a year ago. Absolutely not. I would have not done it. Um, was what I thought then. Um, but I think I had to think more long-term. I think when anyone's in that place of sort of grieving, it's so easy for the world to kind of close in and you stop sort of dreaming and you're just fixating, right? And you're, you're in that buyer's remorse phase that is so common after a business sale. And all you're thinking about is the past instead of thinking about the future and all of the businesses you get to start and all of the great things you get to do and the trips you get to take and the time with your family and the whole reason that you sold your company in the first place. Uh, it's like you regress almost and you forget mm -hmm. all of those things. And I did, and that's exactly what happened. Um, and so now looking back, I can say very much, I would do the deal again and I'm happy that I did it. And, um, it's just taken a long time to get to that point. And so what's the next chapter going to look like for you? What's, what can we expect from Kate? Yeah. So, um, actually it's really cool to be doing this now because in, I'm in a very full circle moment where I've kind of come to the end of this, what ended up with the, the consulting period after the sale, it's really been about a year, um, since that and about a year and a half since the sale. Um, and I'm going to be starting a new role with a small startup called AMP, their personalization engine. And I'm going to be coming on as the chief of staff there and helping them scale their company. Uh, and I am so excited. I, and it's just one of those things where you can't dream about when you're in it and you're especially going through that business sale process. You just know like, Hey, I'm going to move on to something, hopefully, um, more, ex more exciting or be learning more like you were in the beginning of your business. Um, because that's, what's always driven me is I love learning. And so I'm making a huge shift moving into a SaaS tech-based company. And so it's going to be in a massive amount of, of growth and learning that I'm looking forward to. That's exciting. So there's yeah. life after a business sale. Yes. Yeah, there very True. much is. And and it, it, it's always weird at first. Everyone always asks you like, oh, when you're an entrepreneur and you sell your company, what's your next business going to be? It's like sure. when you get married and people go, when are you going to have a baby? It's like the exact same thing. It's like a knee-jerk question. Everybody asks you. Yeah. 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 What's your next company? And I knew when I sold the kombucha shop, I had no interest in turning around and starting another business. Um, I think that came from being a solo founder that I was just a little drained and exhausted from that process. So I was way more excited about the idea of joining a startup so that I could have mentors again, because I had been kind of in that mentor role, but I think it's really important to always have mentees and mentors. And so I'm looking forward to being back in sort of the learning seat. And yeah. 
that that old expression it's uh it's lonely at the top is true i think for a lot of entrepreneurs it, it can be grinding by the end you can you feel really uh depleted and crave that feedback and that team and are you open to people reaching out to you on linkedin or is there social media that you prefer totally yeah linkedin is great um yeah you can find me there under kate field um and yeah happy to always happy to connect with people and and help offer advice and things Thanks, Kate. Well, this has been a huge help for a lot of people listening. Your story is very real and it's got lots of twists and turns, but it worked out in the end and I'm really grateful for you sharing it. Awesome. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.